letter to the church in Laodicea. It's, it's one of seven letters found in the book of Revelation written by the apostle John to seven first century churches scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia, now Western Turkey. Some of those churches at the time uh, facing great persecution, others the, the dangers of false teaching and cultural compromise, still others spiritual complacency. Challenges, all of which the church has continued to face since the penning of Revelation. Each and every one of John's seven letters, both timeless and timely in that regard. Picking up with the last of those letters, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Laodicea, it was, a, it was a commercially prosperous city, located roughly 10 miles or so from the city of Colossae, major banking center of Asia Minor, front runner in the industry of making garments of fine black wool, the home of a medical school that specialized in creating eye salve or ointment for both cosmetic and medicinal purposes, a city with a high allegiance to Rome. So that not only was practically every building and statue in the city dedicated to a Roman emperor, but two, uh, the worship of Greco-Roman gods and goddesses was common practice. In terms of infrastructure, the city had no water source. We'll see why that's important in just a moment. So that aqueducts were created to bring in water from outside the city. This is an, an image of what one of those aqueducts would have looked like. In God's providence, Laodicea, it was surrounded by two other cities, both of which had water sources of their own. Colossae, on the one hand, known for its cold, refreshing springs, and Hierapolis, on the other side, known for its hot, medicinal springs. In terms of background on the church, the church in Laodicea was likely one of the more well-known uh, among the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. Again, mentioned five times in Paul's letter to the Colossian church. A church for whom Paul struggled and toiled, warning them, teaching them, interceding for them. We'll sit with these verses just weeks from now. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 through chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, Him, speaking of Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Paul struggled and toiled, not just for the Colossian church, but the Laodicean church. In addition to that struggle and toil, they were likely the first people, think about this, to read the book of Colossians outside of the Colossians themselves. As Paul told the Colossian church to pass on to the church in Laodicea the letter that he wrote to them. That's why you find these words in Colossians chapter 4 toward the end of the letter. Paul says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. 
apostolic intercession these people had. The earliest New Testament manuscripts in hand. One would expect great things for the church in Laodicea. And yet, it's the only church in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation having received from the Lord Jesus absolutely no commendation nor encouragement. Jesus says to the the reputation managers in the church of Sardis, there are a few of you who are faithful. Not so with the church in Laodicea, for whom there's no mention of a, a remnant of faithful Christians. Jesus identifying himself to the Laodicean church as the amen, the the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The amen, the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes. The faithful and true witness with the authority to both assess and rebuke a church bearing false witness. The beginning of God's creation, the preeminent one from whom all of creation begins and on whom all of creation depends. All, All these descriptors key. As Jesus goes on to rebuke the church in Laodicea for her spiritual complacency. Born out of the soil, we'll see this in a moment, of self-righteousness, self-reliance, and self-delusion even. He says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is kind of embarrassing. The term Laodicean has come to be defined as being lukewarm or indifferent with respect to religion or politics. This city, this church, got stamped with that definition over time. Lackadaisical, complacent, apathetic, inoculated. Inoculation being the the introduction of a disease agent into a healthy individual to produce a mild form of the disease followed by immunity. Sadly, many church-going people are are inoculated to Jesus Christ in our day, having just enough of an, an introduction to Jesus to feel okay having a mild form of the gospel, just enough to, to fight off the real strand. Which is why it's possible to participate in gatherings like these for years and never experience more of Christ. Many are conditioned to fight him off. Good with a, a mild form of Jesus, just enough to, to feel religiously okay. Happy with a life enhancing Jesus, conditioned to fight off a life altering Jesus. Sam Storms, in his commentary on this passage, he says, To be lukewarm is to live as if what you presently know and experience of Christ is enough. No need or desire to press in further. No need or desire to seek after God. The Laodicean church was inoculated, as are many who participate in church life today. Spiritually complacent, lukewarm which some take to to mean that Jesus is bringing before us the the imagery of a temperature gauge of sorts on the Christian life, with those who are hot being the ones who are on fire for the Lord, those who are cold being the ones who have hearts of stone toward the Lord. And yet, a great many scholars argue that the church in Laodicea, she would have understood the language Jesus uses here quite differently. Again, Laodicea was surrounded by, by two 
other cities, both of which had water sources of their own. Colossae with its cold springs, bringing refreshment. And Hierapolis with its warm springs, bringing healing. The Laodicean church described as neither hot nor cold, bringing neither refreshment nor healing. It's, it's a dangerous thing that Jesus addresses here in these verses. And we'll see in a moment the greatest danger in all of this. Jesus essentially says to a first century church that had apostolic intercession, that sat with the earliest New Testament manuscripts, that their spiritual complacency had rendered them useless for the kingdom bringing neither refreshment to the weary like the cold waters of Colossae, nor healing to the wounded and broken like the warm springs of of Hierapolis. Jesus declares, I will spit you out of my mouth, the tepid water that you are. It's the kind of language that Jesus uses with no other church to whom he writes in Revelation. Not the church in Ephesus who had abandoned her first love, Not the church in Pergamum who had compromised herself theologically and morally. Not the church in Sardis who had become fixated on reputation management. Charles Spurgeon once said, The great curse of the church, that which brings more dishonor upon the Lord than all the ribald jests of scoffing atheists, is the lukewarmness of its members. The church in Laodicea had become lukewarm, her spiritual complacency rendering her useless for the kingdom. Some might ask, how could, how could such a thing happen? What might prompt a church to drift into the waters of spiritual complacency? And, and there are a lot of answers to a question like that. But in the case of the Laodicean church, Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea was an incredibly affluent city, kind of like Peachtree City. Having experienced a a great earthquake between the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and John's uh, writing of this letter, unlike other cities that surrounded her, wealthy enough to rebuild herself without help from Rome, Communicating to everyone around her in doing so a a spirit of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. I don't need a cup of sugar from any of you as my neighbors. In their minds, how could we be so, how could we be poor, Jesus? We're the epicenter of the banking industry. How could we be blind with our many medical schools, doctors, and eye medicines? How could we be naked? Look around at our many wool factories doesn't make any sense. To which Jesus says, you're beggars despite your banks. You're blind despite your eye surgeons and medicines. You're naked despite your wool factories. Failing to see that, that money can't buy everything. That garments of wool can't cover everything. That surgeons and medicines can't heal everything. Not only self-sufficient in their own right, but self-delusional. 
unable to see these things for themselves, which is why Jesus declares them to be not only wretched, pitiable, poor, and naked, but, but also blind. And, and, and this is the scary thing, is that they weren't blind as isolated individuals who just needed others around them to help them see their blind spots. They were blind as a community in a together way. Here receiving strong rebuke from, from the Lord Jesus. The words of the amen, verse 14, the one in whom all of the promises of God find their yes, spoken to a church trusting in the promises of wealth and prosperity. The words of the faithful and true witness with the authority to both assess and rebuke a church bearing false witness, spoken to a church having become useless for the kingdom. The words of the beginning of God's creation, the preeminent one from whom all of creation begins and on whom all of creation depends, spoken to a church having drifted into the waters of self-reliance. Jesus goes on to say, it does get encouraging. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. A call from Jesus to, to turn from the drifting waters of spiritual complacency formed by the, the waves of self-reliance and, and self-delusion. Jesus declaring in verse 18, turn from your other suppliers, I have everything you need. You don't have to live this way. Like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Jesus saying, I can offer you the true riches, the, the riches of the kingdom of God. I can offer you the true garments, robes of righteousness to clothe your nakedness and shame. I can offer you true healing, giving you eyes to see things as they really are. John Stott in his commentary on this passage says, he can open our eyes to perceive a spiritual world in which we have never dreamed. He can cover our sin and shame and make us fit to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. He can enrich us with life and life abundant. In a word, he can save us. He has died for us and risen again. Through his death, we can be cleansed. And through his living presence within us, we can be changed. That's good news. Some might say, but, but how? How do you buy from Jesus when all you have to offer is counterfeit currency? Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Just another way of saying that it comes back to repentance and faith. Repentance and faith being uh, two sides of the, the same coin. John Murray in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he says that the faith that is unto salvation is penitent faith, and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. Or to say it in the language of verse 19, the zeal that is unto salvation is a penitent zeal, and the repentance that is unto life is a zealous repentance. Jesus embraces sinners where, where they are, but in his kindness, he doesn't leave us there. 
here exhorting the, the Laodicean church to turn from their spiritual complacency, from their spirit of self-reliance and half-hearted indifference. And with that, to keep fanning uh, the flame of zeal for Christ, refusing to settle for anything less than, than all of him. Like the man in the parable of the treasure hidden in a field. Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea are some of the strongest words of rebuke in all of the Bible. And yet words motivated by a deep, deep, deep love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I love you too much to stand by and watch you live a life of spiritual complacency, of indifference, of inoculation. I love you too much to leave you drowning in the waters of your own self-reliance and self-delusion. As the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The church of Laodicea was was missing out. The peaceful fruit of, of righteousness ripe for the picking, yet hanging on the tree in their failure to see it and grab it. Jesus says, I love you too much to let that happen any longer. It's time to trade in your tin for gold. He goes on in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Incredibly famous words of Jesus, oftentimes framed as a, an evangelistic call. And, and make no mistake about it, there, there are many who have come to Christ through the proclaiming of these words. Perhaps even today is, is the day of salvation for someone in this very gathering. The day to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him. The day that you begin to know the joy of true fellowship with Christ. Having said that, in context, many scholars agree that this is not an evangelistic plea, but rather Jesus' pursuit to reestablish intimacy with his spiritually complacent beloved. The discipline of God, verse 19, reserved for the children of God. Again, Sam Storm says, In an expression of indescribable condescension and love, Jesus asks permission to enter and reestablish fellowship with his people, a fellowship portrayed in the imagery of a feast in which Christ and Christians share. Do you hear him knocking this morning? Will you open the door of your heart to deeper fellowship with him, no matter where you are in fellowship with him this day coming in? John Stott says, if we do open the door of our heart to Jesus Christ and let him in, he will bring an end to our beggary. He will transform us from paupers into princes. He will cleanse us and clothe us. He will eat with us and we shall be permitted to eat with him. That he should bid us come and eat with him is honor enough, but that he should wish to share our humble board and eat with us is wonder beyond our finite understanding. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. The deep joy of intimate fellowship with Jesus. 
wonder beyond our finite understanding, promises sufficient to end the letter right here with verse 20. And yet, Jesus goes on to say, verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I don't even know what to do with this promise. It's too, too wondrous. It's too, it's too astounding. A share in the rule and reign of all things under Jesus' authority, by Jesus' power, for Jesus' glory. John Piper writes about this, this verse, Without omnipotent help now, we cannot feel the wonder of what we are destined to become. But if we are granted to feel it, as it really is, all our emotional reactions to this world will change. The strange and radical commands of the New Testament will not be as strange as they once seemed. We need eyes to see things as they really are. We need help to, to feel the wonder of what we're destined to become. We need ears to, to hear the Spirit of God through the Word of Christ. As the letter goes on to come to its conclusion, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear these words of Jesus calling his beloved out of spiritual complacency and self-reliance. Let him hear these words of Jesus calling his beloved to know the peaceful fruit of righteousness in deeper fellowship with him. This letter, the, the kindness of the Lord who loves us too much to leave us where we are. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, th this isn't the first kindness of such that the Laodicean church received. Again, they, they had the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church, likely in its original manuscripts, long before the letter of rebuke that they received now situated among the seven letters to the seven churches. They had the book of Colossians, the very book with which we're going to sit with as a church for the next several months. That's why we went here this morning. There are a lot less heavy passages in Scripture for a standalone Sunday. Make no mistake about it. But I want us to see. I want us to, to see the, the story of the Laodicean church and how the book of Colossians had its place in their story. My prayer is that their story would not be ours. That our time spent with Paul's letter to the Colossian church over these next several months would awaken our hearts to the goodness, glory, and grace of God in Jesus Christ. That we might not be counted among the lukewarm churches of our day, but rather those joyfully zealous for Christ bringing refreshment to the weary, like the cold waters of Colossae, bringing healing to the wounded and broken, like the warm springs of Hierapolis, that that would be our church, that we would hear what the Spirit says to the churches, both this morning and in the months to come, through God's Word. I'll leave you with a quote from an essay by C.S. Lewis entitled Christian Apologetics. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Lord Jesus, help us by your grace. In a moment, 
we're going to continue to worship Jesus and bring what I, I pray and, and trust our hearts zealous with love for him. As we look at all that he has done, is doing, and will do for us in the fullness of his redemptive work. Specifically, we get to celebrate his death through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of that meal, but rather that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are a Christian, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are communion stations on either side of the stage. There's a gluten-free station back there. There are cups back on that table. You cannot miss communion no matter which direction you go. As you prepare to receive of those elements this morning, I would just take you back to verse 18 of this morning's passage. That in Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, the true riches are, are ours. The whitest of garments covering our sin and our shame, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, true healing, the true salve, the balm of the gospel. Consider these things as you receive of the bread and the cup this morning. That Jesus has purchased our redemption and as his beloved, he loves us too much to leave us where we are.